right. Um, if you've got your Bibles, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and we've been in this, um, we've just restarted our series of 1 Corinthians after the Christmas and New Year's and kind of January vision series. But uh, I love where, how God just ordains certain things in our lives, didn't he? That we can't plan these things, we don't time them, but we've just had a whole vision series about what it means to be church, what it means to be the body, and what it means if you're new to this church body, or if you've come recently, I thought it was a really wonderful time where we were to recenter what it means to be part of Christ's local church. And when we look in this chapter, in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, we're talking about relationships. We're talking about relationships between each other as being part of the body of church. Because the church is full of different kinds of people, isn't it? We're not, I look around this auditorium here and I see different people from different walks of life, um, different ages. And it's a wonderful thing to be in a community where we have such great um, depth of, of backgrounds. But with depth of backgrounds and history, we also come with different wavering, sometimes opinions, and different ways we see life or have seen life or experienced life. And part of Corinthians church, the Corinthian church, which Paul, when he was writing in that church, was basically gathering people from Greek backgrounds, from Jewish backgrounds, from Roman backgrounds. It was a real center point of so many cultures coming together. And as part of that community, it means there were things that divided people. There were different opinions and different parts of the way people did life which and their histories, which meant that there was unfortunately conflict and things that divided people. And this is where we jump into at 1 Corinthians 8. Paul is addressing a specific issue, a specific cultural issue which was in their church at the moment, at that time. And in that moment, we, we, get, the, we get the chance to to look into what their situation was, but also think about what it means for our lives here in the 21st century. And that issue was around idolatry. It was around the, uh, the, the culture that they were sitting in, but it was all mainly about whether or not it was okay to eat food that was offered to idols. And for many of us, some of us come from different cultural backgrounds where you might have experienced as your physical idol worship in your, in your, in your background. For me, being Asian, East Asian, um, we actually used to have idols in our house. When we, my parents moved here in, in the 70s, and they pretty much stayed in Hertfordshire. But they were given idols by their parents, and we had some in our house on our, uh, on our not mantelpiece, on our kind of shelf behind our sofa. So it was just like there were idols in our house, like physical um, stone idols. And when my, my, when my mom became a Christian uh, in 1987 ish, probably 88, um, when I was around five, six years old, those idols disappeared. I was like, oh, it's gone. <laughs> Change the decor. Um, because there was, there's, there's a sense that when Jesus, becomes your Lord, when Jesus becomes your Lord and Savior, then the idols no longer have any place. And it's interesting that when we think about idolatry, when we think about idol worship, we normally think back to maybe, I don't know, my kids at the moment, they were watching Percy Jackson. Anyone know or read Percy Jackson books? Yeah, some of us love it, yeah. So it's all about Greek mythology and, 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 and gods in those senses. But we normally think back to maybe museums. You think, oh, when I go to the British Museum, I'll see some, you know, massive stone idols of, you know, Ares or something or some artwork. And we think of idolatry in those ways. But actually, when we think about idolatry as a heart issue, then we're actually surrounded in a culture that has idolatry throughout it and in it. And it's impacting our lives. 
and we're in it in, in a day-to-day sense. So what we're talking about today is we're going to talk about the idea of idolatry and what it says in the Bible about that and how ultimately it, it, it works out into our lives and how Christ becomes the one who dispels the power and the authority of idols and becomes the Lord and Savior and the one that we hold to and not hold to the power of idolatry. So this, um, this series, as I said, is about loving, uh, walking in the way of love. And um, Paul, as a pastor who writes to the Corinthian church in chapter 8, really is writing with a pastoral heart. And I want us to read um, from verse 4 to 8 this morning, if that's possible. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to read from the ESV, but I'm sure the text will come up on the screen. But we're going to read from verses 4 to 8. Therefore, as to eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things exist, through whom all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom we all things and through whom all things we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. So we have this one issue in the Corinthian church, which is really It seems small, doesn't it? It seems tiny when we read it in this passage, but it's a massive thing. So much so that Paul has to write about it. And the way they communicated in the olden days wasn't um, through, you know, email or quick text messages. It took a while for someone to receive a letter. Paul wasn't in in Corinth at that time. They had to receive a letter, then they have to send a letter back to address that issue. So this is a major issue that Paul wanted to really address to the church because it took, it would take a long time. So if he came up with an issue, Paul would receive it as a letter. He would send the letter back. And this issue was to the issue of whether they could eat meat that was offered to idols. And in the society that Corinth was, they had many, many, many idols throughout their city. It was almost like it was part of the furniture. Literally, you would go on street corners. There would be a temple. There would be icons. There would be images. It permeated all of society. And Paul's really interesting in this passage because he recognizes that. He really does recognize that if you are a Christian living in a society, you live in a culture full of idols. And you may think that it's like Percy Jackson in the old days where you've got like all these Greco-Roman type idols. Um, But actually, as I said at the beginning of my introduction, there is a sense that we're full of a society full of idolatry. It just has a different form. So when we look at idols... um, there, is, there are two groups. There are people who are saying that I can freely and happily eat meat offered to idols. It's almost like, as Ant said last week, it was part of society. If you went to the butchers, that meat was probably offered and run out of a idolatry temple in the area. You couldn't avoid it. You'd have to be really, 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 really like, I don't know, you'd probably have to own your own meat or something and kill it and have it to have that meat which hadn't gone through that process of what the society around them had. It's like nowadays, you know, it's really quite easy to find vegan-type products, isn't it? But a few years ago, it was really hard. The other day, we had some friends around, and we had to go search for vegan-free, egg-free, um, what else was it free of? 
gluten-free pancake mix because it was pancake week and we thought we want to bless this person with pancakes. And it was really hard because there was one shop, we went there and they were out of stock. And I was like, um, But you know, that was the idea. It was really, really difficult to escape the fact that you're in a society where it was just a normality. So when we think about um, idols and we think about the, the, the fact that we as a culture are surrounded by idols, we need to think of what the Bible says about idolatry. And I want to start our text of thinking about this through Exodus 20, which is the giving of the Ten Commandments, where God establishes himself as the one creator God. He reveals himself to Israel. He reveals himself as the one who saves them from, from, um, from the Egyptians. And he, through Moses, establishes the Ten Commandments, which are a revelation of who he is, his character, and who his people are to be as well. And I want to read from Exodus 20, verse 3. It says this, and this is God speaking through Moses to the Israelites. It says that you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or you shall not serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And many of us would have read this through Sunday school or through our readings. We know that the Ten Commandments are there and you should have no idols. And it's interesting that the reason why there are no, that God establishes it because of who he is. God establishes that there should be no idols because they are created things. And as Clive wonderfully brought this morning, there is one creator God. So how can it be that we can even compare the worship of idols to the one who is the one who is creating all things? It's just illogical, isn't it, that we would give our affections to something that is created when we go straight to the source of the creator. And God, as he reveals himself through Moses and through the Israelites, establishes that he alone is Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, the Holy One who alone is worthy of worship. And it seems absurd that man-made objects or created things could ever deserve any affection other than that's directed to the Lord. And I love the and if you ever read the Bible, you, we know it in kind of this macro picture, don't we? We know if we've read the Bible or heard, um, if you've spent any time in church, you know that this law was established. And it was like, yes, amazing. We know who the true God is now. But we know that the nation of Israel went through cycles of apostasy where they fell away from the Lord. God would bring judges and he would redeem them. Then they would fall away again. And idolatry and the worship of foreign gods never, ever escaped them as a society. They never had the power, never had the ability to, to live as, as according to God's law, which was to establish him alone as God, the only one who was worthy. And it's funny that how that's been illustrated through parts of the Bible. And one of the funny things I, I, I remember reading from Isaiah 44 when I was a kid was, um, was just how God sometimes used mockery. He uses like humor to try and describe the absurdity of some things that we as human beings go through. And I want to read from Isaiah 44, which is God speaking through the prophet Isaiah about what it means that we should bow down to created things. Um, and, and read this as mockery. Read this as like a, a, as someone kind of almost taking the mick out of the situation. So Isaiah, com he's commenting about the fact that idols, like physical idols, are actually made out of created things. He says, an ironsmith, he takes a cutting tool, he works it over the coals, he fashions it with hammers and works with it with a strong arm, but then he becomes hungry. 
and his strength fails. And he has to drink water, otherwise he'll faint. But then he goes and cuts down, the workman goes and cuts down cedars. It becomes fuel for a man. He takes it apart and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes some bread. And then he goes along and says, I'll make a god and worship it. He makes an idol. He falls down before it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. The other half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied and he warms himself. And then he goes along and makes a god. He makes an idol. He falls down and worships it. And he prays and says, deliver me for you are my God. Small g. So what is Isaiah saying in this passage? He's saying that idols, firstly, that they are man-made. They're made with human hands, made through human weakness. They don't have power, authority to create. They're created out of common, ordinary, day-to-day things, wood, metal, commodities. And yet, people fall down and they worship and they put their trust, they put their love, their affection and worship into them. It's crazy, it's illogical, isn't it? That we should choose as we human beings to choose to worship things that are created and rather the creator. And to illustrate this, I had a bit of fun this week because I've been boarding my loft and using lots of wood and lots of offcuts. And I decided just for fun to see how easy it would be to make an idol or a created thing. Um, it's pretty advanced, I thought, as, as my, you know, I've had a few power tools out and I cut some offcuts. It's got opposing thumbs, which is always good in life to have opposing thumbs so you can pick up stuff. Um, it's got eyes and unfortunately his, his hairdo fell off, so I had to use glue. But, um, but yeah, just, just, it's funny, isn't it, that we, Isaiah describes created things, common things, wood, metal, uhu glue. Um, to create something that we choose to put our affections, our trust, our love into. <laughs> that was not at all staged. There's no like little rope or something. Um, the absurdity of it. God in heaven is just looking going, what are you doing? Using the created things that I've made to worship and to honor instead of looking to me, the source of life and hope. And this is what um, Paul's looking into. He's looking at the society around him in the, in the nation of, in the city of Corinth. And he's not just addressing Corinth, he addresses it in the book of Romans as well. In Rome, he talks about idolatry and we see idolatry talked about throughout the New Testament and throughout the Old Testament. But in a Greco-Roman world, you can't escape the fact that idolatry exists whether in physical form, in terms of stones and, and actual objects, or whether in the heart of our hearts, which is where idolatry first starts. So here we see Paul in verse 4. If you're tracking with me in, in the passage, we're going to look at verse 4. It says, therefore, as to eating food off to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and there is no God but one. So in a world full of um, uh, physical artifacts and things in their, in their culture, you could go to any public space in Corinth and you would see idols. You'd see them on the street corners. You'd see the big temples. You'd see things like um, Aphrodite, who is the goddess of beauty. So you people would choose to have their favorite gods who would they, they would go and worship and honor. So there'd be Aphrodite. There was Ares, god of war. 
So if you were a soldier or something, then that was maybe the God that you pray to because you want victory in your life in those areas. Artemis, the God of fertility and wealth. How many of us want that? Isn't that, that's, that's what people want, right? People want to know where the source of hope for wealth and security comes from. Or there's Hephaestus, the God of craftsmanship. People who, I don't know, like me, need to improve. Maybe I should, you know, <laughs> I should, you know. You know, they would go to these gods to obtain their favor and to put their trust in and say, if I worship you and honor you and give to you, then you surely will help me in that area of my life. So that's interesting. That's the culture that Paul was in and the church of Corinth was in. And um, there are idols. There are facts that in the 21st century also that we know and identify and recognize that there are idols in our lives that surround us. 1 Corinthians 8, 5 says this. Although there may be so-called gods in heaven or earth, so Paul doesn't ignore that there aren't them. He says that there are so-called small g gods in heaven and earth. And indeed, there are many gods in hyphenates and also lords. Paul recognizes that we are surrounded by this in our society. And, um, but as I said at the beginning, we don't often recognize that idols, ne- not necessarily in physical form, they also exist in the places that we put our trust in, in our hearts, trust in, and our love towards. And to illustrate this, I want to just remind us that idols are real. There are cultures in, in terms of physical idols, there are cultures that have idolatry, um, whether you come from the Southeast Asian culture like me, or whether you come from kind of African culture, idols and, and physical uh, manifestations, you could say, which people direct their attention to, do exist, and we don't ignore that. But I think in the 21st century here in, in and around London, that we have to think a little bit deeper. Are there actual cultural idols that we experience now, every day, that we have to be aware of, we have to recognize? Because Paul recognizes it in this passage. And I want to read from a a wonderful book by by Tim Keller, the late Tim Keller, called Counterfeits Gods. And if you are um, at all interested in just exploring some of the things that we are talking about today in greater depth, this is a great book. And I want to read just from his introduction. It says here that sometimes our contemporary culture is not fundamentally different from these ancient ones. Every and each culture is dominated by its own set of idols. Each has its own priesthoods, its totems, its rituals. Each one has its own shrines. They may be office towers, they may be the spa, they may be the gym, studios, or even stadiums, where sacrifices must be made in order to procure a blessing for a good life and ward off disaster. What are the gods of beauty? What are the gods of power? What are the gods of money and achievement? They're the same things, uh, but these same things that have assumed mythical proportions in our individual lives and in society. We may not kneel before the physical statue of Aphrodite, but many young women today are driven into depression, eating disorders, and obsession and concern over their body image. Isn't that true? We may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice when we neglect family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. It's really interesting when you just see the comparisons of what those gods were. Yes, they were physical innate objects, but actually the deeper truth was that they came from a yearning of the heart to find fulfillment in that area of their life. 
And we do the same today, don't we? We do the same, that we raise up counterfeit gods. We set up our own idols. And part of Christian living is actually to recognize that there are idols in our lives. Our hearts are yearning for love, for trust, for meaning. But what we do instead of looking to the creator, the God who gives it all, we look instead to created things. We seek them in the satisfaction of things that we feel we control, but actually they control us. Idolatry is simply this. When we're seeking after anything, and it might not be a bad thing, family, wealth, the ability to make money, success, they're not inherently bad things. But idolatry is when we seek after anything that it replaces God to fulfill that need for love, for trust, and for hope. And for each of us, this is a personal thing. There are things that are quite common to um, to, to our lives in this 21st Western century, um, society. Sex, money, and power are the things that we often talk about, and that's covered wonderfully in this book by Tim Keller. But really, we have to look deep into ourselves and allow the Holy Spirit to make us aware of how these things, these idols, that actually control our lives. And for that, we need the Holy Spirit's help. We can't force it through coercion or through accusing. That's not how God works. We do it by identifying firstly and honoring that there are idols out there. We're surrounded by them, but we're also surrounded, as Helen mentioned this morning, we're surrounded by the truth and the love of Jesus Christ. So in verse 5, firstly, we have to identify the idols in our society. We have to identify them, how we, how we may experience them in our lives. But secondly, Paul, in this passage, wants us to uproot and replace those idols. He wants us to uproot and replace them. Verse five, verse six, sorry, uh, purely says this, yet for us, yet for us, and if we just stop there, who is us? Us are those who belong to Jesus. Us are those who have been saved from sin and been rescued from our previous lives and made a new creation. Us are those whom, through no ability of our own, have been rescued from darkness into light. For us, who have been received the grace of God, there is one God, and he is the Father from whom all things and for whom all things exist. And there is one Lord Jesus Christ for whom all things and through, through whom all things we exist. So Paul could have simply said this to the Corinthian church. He could have simply said, idols, they have no power. There's no real existence. Look, it's a piece of wood with screws in it. He could have said, idols have no real existence. Fact. He could have said, there is one true God, fact. And he could have ended at that point because he's, he's said nothing wrong, has he? He's kind of not said anything unfactually true. But knowing facts about God, knowing knowledge which only is, is about facts, rather than experiencing the true one God are very different things. To destroy and to uproot our idols, if we just know facts about God, in our heads, they don't get us very far. But to know the true living God who has saved us and redeemed us and is our Lord and Jesus, Jesus our Savior, and that impacts our hearts, and we live out from that, that changes everything. It's interesting, the illustration is this, really. Um, you can imagine, you know facts about 
celebrities or famous people, don't you? You can go to their Wikipedia page. Uh, you can even follow them on Twitter or now X if you want to, or Instagram, and you can know. That's I think that's the amazing thing about Instagram. You can go slightly deeper into their lives, can't you? It reveals slightly more. You can know about their Wikipedia page. You can follow them on Instagram. You can know them on X. But until you sit down with someone and you spend time with them, you have a meal with them, you hear what they love, you hear what they're thinking, you hear about their hopes and their dreams, only at that point do you really get to know somebody. And that is what God offers to you. He doesn't just offer you facts about him or like, you know, get me this, these 10 points, quizzes, right? And you're, you're a great Christian. He says, come and know me. Come and eat with me. Come and fellowship with me. I am the Lord God who has made everything possible that you can have a totally different knowledge of who God is because he invites you into his presence. And this is what Paul says this God is. He's not just a God who is... Um, there's, he's not just to say he's the one God. He says he's the God who is firstly our Father. We know God as Father. And when you think about that and you allow yourself to think about what does it mean to be a father, that means we are his children, that we are beloved, that we are adored, that he sent his only son to die, that we might become children of God. That is who God reveals himself to us. When we uproot our idols, we replace it with the knowledge that we have a loving God who fills us with a love that can be found nowhere else. We exist for him as loved children. And the second thing Paul reveals in this passage in verse 6 is that there is one Lord. There is one Lord, Jesus Christ. And when I think about that word Lord and we think about who Je what Jesus did, he's the Lord who didn't come with a big stick and a sword and to, to come and, and rule over us. He is coming. <laughs> we know that he is coming. But and he came uh, to Israel and he came and died on that cross. He came as a Lord who laid down his life for us. He came as the Lord of all creation with every right, every authority to be worshipped. But he came as a humble babe at Christmas and laid down his life so that all may know him and enter in. His lordship is this. His lordship is laying down of authority and taking up a cross. His lordship is laying down his life so that other people may be raised up and have life in him. His lordship is that he could not be held by the grave. And because of that, we get to reign with him as well. And he will raise us up on the last days. That is the Lord in whom we have been invited to know and to replace those idols with. Idols offer nothing. They offer only more pain, disappointment, and hurt. But the Lord we have is a loving Father, a gracious Savior, and says, find your hope, your love, your trust in me, and I will never disappoint you. That is the God whom we are invited to replace idols with. So knowing God in that way changes everything. Knowing facts doesn't help, but knowing that we are loved, we are adored, we are invited by grace alone, means that our hearts are changed. Jesus must become more beautiful in our minds, more attractive in our hearts, more precious than any other idol will give us. It means that we can rejoice and rest in what Jesus has done. We don't need to strive for success and for achievement anymore. It leads us to a sense of worship 
and honor and beauty towards God as our Father in prayer and in worship now. That is the God that we get to serve, not out of compulsion, but out of joy and out of thankfulness and out of sure grace. And I love this illustration that, um, again, um, Tim Keller uses. He uses the idea of of, of weeding and planting. We get to weed out the idols in our lives when we recognize them. And we get to plant instead the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of Jesus Christ in those places. And when we plant that truth of who God is, the weeds never grow back. Jesus becomes the source of life in our garden. This is the kind of planting that brings freedom. This is the kind of planting that brings truth and hope and constrains us from sin. But Paul doesn't just, um, well, Paul amazingly gives the Corinthian church this beautiful backdrop of who we worship. Who is it that takes our, who takes their pl- the place now of idols in their lives? But there are some people still in this, in this um, church in Corinth who, even though they can know it, even though they can know it in their heads or even get it into their hearts, there are still areas of their lives where idol, idolatry and worship is still a point where they suffer and they struggle with. And I love how Paul loses verse 7. He goes on to say this in verse 7 of this chapter. However, not all of us possess this knowledge. Not all of us possess this knowledge. Some go through former association with idols. They eat food as if it was really offered to an idol. And their conscience being weak is defiled. Um, yeah, weak in conscience. I was thinking about this week. What does it mean to call somebody weak? Not pointing at any fingers. My hands were all widespread. But weak people, we normally think, are people who are, you know, a little bit like, you know, yeah. You know, they're a little bit like, you know, they don't have a, don't have a backbone. They don't have like a strong kind of authority in their life. And the way in which it's interesting, when we think about how Paul uses it here, we often in our 21st century mind, we think that people who are weak uh, are maybe people who have a weak conscience, which means that maybe they don't feel bad about doing wrong things. You know, they're morally, they're weak, maybe, or they're indecisive, or they can't make decisions. And... Um, they have a, maybe a lack of moral compass. Maybe that's the way in which we see weakness in our society. But actually, the people in this passage here had a weak conscience because of their former lives, the way they had formerly lived. Don't forget, many of them had grown up maybe in the Greco-Roman world. They had served idols of their families, and their society was all full of idolatry worship. So their background, their history was full of just the normality of life. So they were in it. And suddenly they'd been rescued out of that into Christ, and their past lives still affect the way they live. Isn't that so much like us in, in our lives? When Jesus Christ saved us, we don't suddenly just jump from, you know, this bandwagon to this bandwagon, and we're suddenly like there's a clean slate. Yes, there is in Christ, but our still our lives are still intertwined with society and day-to-day life. So therefore, we recognize that all of us, whether you've been a Christian for five minutes or whether you've been a Christian for 50, 60 years, in some way we are all still weak. And that means when we look at this passage, we have to think about it this way. Paul's description isn't about people who are morally you know, broke or morally without a moral compass. It's actually people who are weak in this passage are described as people who have a lack of ability to protect themselves from feeling defiled 
maybe they always think they're guilty. When they mess up, they always think, oh, I did it again, I did it wrong. Maybe they always feel condemned. Maybe they always feel polluted by the world they live around, that lives around them. That is kind of the way in which Paul uses the word weak here. That a person with weak conscience is someone who can't take the truth of who God is, the grace and the love that he's received, and they, mess, they can't necessarily apply that into every area of their lives. It's interesting, when we deeply orientate ourselves towards knowing that we are loved, when we deeply orientate ourselves to knowing that we are loved and by grace we are saved, then we don't have to worry about what I'll eat, what I will drink, what clothes I will wear, because the Father in heaven already knows what I need. That's what Jesus said, right? I don't have to worry about beauty. Look at the lilies of the field. Look how they are adorned in beauty and splendor. Look at the birds of the air. Um, look how the Father feeds them. They don't know where they're reaping or sowing. So why am I so worried about my work and achievement and getting to next corporate ladder stage? Do you see how the idols of our lives are about the fact that we haven't trusted fully in the love and the grace of God to satisfy our every desires? Does it mean we don't work hard? No, we work hard. Does it mean we don't take care of our family and provide clothing for them and whatever else um, in my family young girls need? Um, yeah, accessories and everything else. No, we do. But it's not with a heart of saying, if I do this, I'm satisfied. If this, I will be loved. If this, if I fulfill that, I will be fulfilled in my life because that belongs to the Lord. So weakness comes across in the fact that we all are weak in some areas of our lives. And therefore, we need to find an orientation which helps us to grow strong. And that orientation, as Paul says here, is that you look upon the love and the grace of God as a source of all that you need for life and godliness. We don't look to the idols to satisfy us. We look to the source of all creation, the one who knows us and loves us. So, um, if you're weak in areas of life, maybe it's like this for you. Maybe this is like what it's like for me. Um, sometimes I want to know what is right, what is wrong. Is this the Christian thing to do in the situation, or is this the non-Christian thing to do? Because sometimes when we don't trust in the love of God, our, our decision-making is like, we, we question it, don't we? We don't always have the confidence to step out and just do what God has put before us. We're constantly evaluating. And I think God wants us to be in a place where we know so clearly the love and the grace of God, that out of that place of His Holy Spirit operating our lives, we can live freely and we can give generously, and we can make decisions without fear or think that we make a decision that's wrong. And I think that's where God wants Paul to know that when you know and you're informed about who God is as Father and Lord, then our minds no longer have to evaluate everything. We allow the Holy Spirit to walk in the rhythms of his grace. We're able to walk with freedom and give freely and not be like, oh, you know, I should not give them to that person because now, you know, they might do X, Y, and Z with it. We can give freely. Yes, we give with wisdom, but we give in the, this knowledge that the Holy Spirit can work through us and is working through us. So when we think about strong, strength and weakness in the church, that's really what has divided the church. The strong people have said to the weak people who don't feel like they can eat the meat, they've said, come on, look, it's nothing. God is in charge. Go eat some meat, be free, whatever, do what you want. You know, Jesus is Lord. 
but they haven't applied that truth kindly and lovingly to each other. They haven't chosen to actually support the weak in their communities. And that's what Paul wants to point out, that there's, there is a sense that we have to grow and mature, but actually the mature in Christ have to help and bring up the weak. And that's in a way what this thing we're talking about mentoring as a church, aren't we, this year? We're talking about the sense that we want people who are um, in different stages of life to be helping those who are in different stages of life and helping them through. So I'm really so thankful for the business forum and, and the things that they're doing there because the heart of that isn't you need to be like me. It's more I want to help you and come alongside you and build you up. And that's what we can do in all our lives, whether through um, serving or through loving each other in this community. We want a, to be a community that acknowledges that all of us are weak, but in Christ we can be strong. And we want that to be a, a heart for this church that when we, I always think about the time when somebody wanted to mentor me in my old church. And he came along and says, you know what, come alongside me, we'll have a meal. And he basically wanted to me, make me like him, which was a bit disconcerting because he was bald and old and wore glasses and <laughs> absolutely nothing. But I didn't want to be a carbon copy of, of anything. I, want, I wanted God to fulfill in me his purpose. And part of that was probably maybe my pride as well. Um, but we have to find a place where actually we recognize that firstly we are weak and we do need help. And there are people who are mature and strong and can, we can learn a few things from them, right? But also if we are strong, we need to bear with the weak. And to bear with the weak is what Paul wants to focus on now. He wants us to remind the strong that to bear with the weak means that you need to be like Christ, which is to make yourself low, which is to serve, which is not to grab people and say, be like me, but it's to come down and serve them, to hear, to listen, to identify with the things that they're going through, to spend time with them, not to rush the process, but to give grace and kindness and wisdom out of a place of love. Hence, we're talking about the way of love. Not there anymore, but the way of love. 1 Corinthians is about the way of love. How do we nurture and help people along? It's through kindness and love. So if you are a strong person, if you feel like you are a strong person, amen. If you love the grace of God, if you know and have experienced the love of God as a father, does love his children, then you are in a great place because you are serving out of that wonderful authority that Christ is established in your life and you want to help others as well. Paul ends um, this passage by saying, it's a bit of a strange passage, but it's a strange verse, but it says this. Food doesn't bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat it, and we're no better if we do. Food doesn't bring us near to God. Um, yeah, Paul ends this really interestingly because he's basically saying to those who are strong, who those who are happy to eat meat, he's, happy, he's happily saying that, you know what? If you eat meat and you're fine in Christ and you know the love of God, and you know the grace of God, you go, be free, go eat meat. But it doesn't make you more holy than someone else. It doesn't mean that you're somehow better than this person who is feeling like they can't do that. Because he says here that knowledge in verse 2 of this chapter, which Paul, um, which Paul, which Anne talked about last, last week, says that knowledge sometimes puffs up and brings pride. So if us who here are strong, we feel like we've you know, been, been walking with Jesus for some time, the great um, measure of maturity 
is pride. The great measure I feel of maturity is, is humility. To be able to say to somebody, I know some stuff in Christ. I've been around this a while. I think I can help you. But I don't take you from a, from a place of pride and authority. I come from a place of service. And I want to help you and love you. And that is what Paul wants to say to us from this passage. If you are strong, fantastic. Go and serve out of love and humility. Don't think you're better than someone else and come in with that attitude. But if you're weak and you don't want to eat this meat, it's okay. Go with where your God has put your conscience right now. And God will surround you and he will mature you and help you. So I want that to really be something that we think about as we go forwards as a church into thinking about mentoring and relationships. How can we be people who are grace-driven, love-driven, service-driven from the bottom lifting up rather than people who come and try and drag people up with us? That is not how Jesus operated. That's not how we want to operate. We want to love and serve and walk in a way of love that brings people up. So I want to end with just reading one short passage from, um, from again, this, this, this wonderful book. I can't, yeah, celebrate this book more than, more than anything. Um, sometimes in life, we, we, ident- we talked a lot about idolatry today as a basis. And sometimes in life, I don't know, during worship this morning, I was just thinking and praying. I was thinking that I felt that God was saying that there are idols in our life that God is surfacing right now. There are things in our lives which um, God God is jealous of you. He's jealous of you in a loving, fatherly way. He knows that only his affection, his joy, his love can satisfy you. And if we're digging wells and systems in other areas of our lives, then they will lead to they will lead to destruct. They, they, they won't lead anywhere good. And I always felt the Lord wanted to encourage us this morning to where if he's putting a weight on our hearts and our lives right now for areas that we just acknowledge that, you know what, as Ed was saying, that's idolatry. I'm putting my love and trust into this thing that is created. And I'm not putting it into Jesus, who is the creator. I'm not sure what that looks like for you. I, I don't have a, you know, I'm, God knows your heart. He knows what's going on in your lives. But if we are seeking out um, our affections into these areas and not under the lordship of Jesus, then he wants us to confess. I really do. He wants us to repent and to say sorry and to come back to the heart of worship when it's all about Jesus again. And so this morning, I want to give that invitation that we have to acknowledge that we are susceptible to idols in our day and age right now. And they will be personal to you There'll be personal things that you know that you're looking after, you're thinking after. It's normally when you are, at the end of the day, when you have nothing else filling your mind and you think, what comes to mind? And those are the things that often become our idols. Or they're the things maybe we're applying so much energy or money into. Maybe that is becoming an idol. Or maybe it's the things that, you know, captivate our affections or make us, when we don't get that thing, it makes us angry. You know, these are all the sure signs that God wants us to recognize that we can place those under his lordship. And for us this morning, as we think about idolatry, I want us to discern, I want us the Holy Spirit to help you discern what are the idols in your life. And 
I want us then to ask the Holy Spirit to come this morning and to help us recognize those things and to confess them. Because in John it says, 1 John it says that uh, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive. And he will redeem us and forgive us for our sins. And that is a wonderful promise that if we come recognizing the idols in our lives, Jesus comes and graciously as a Lord and Savior comes and replaces them with something that surpasses and supplants all that these idols would have offered us. So this morning I want to invite us, maybe in our still time now, we can just be still. And I can pray for us. Jesus, I want to thank you that you came to seek and save out the lost. You came and established your lordship in our lives. We are no longer our own, but we belong to you. And I want to pray, Lord, Holy Spirit, would you come now, and in the way that you do, you come in service, and you reveal to us, Lord, the idols that are in our lives. The places where we've placed our affections, we should have placed them in you. When we've trusted and longed after created things rather than the creator. We acknowledge, Lord, that in those areas we are weak. And Holy Spirit, would you come now and like a wave come through this place and help us to uproot those things. Spirit, we thank you that you lead us, Lord, not out of anger or out of, um, and Holy Spirit, I pray now that you would just, as we, you convict our hearts, that we say we're sorry. We are so sorry for following after counterfeit gods. We're so sorry for loving ourselves rather than loving you. Thank you for the grace of God that rescues us and restores us and trains us and teaches us. And thank you for the love of the Father that we can be satisfied totally in you. We say now, Lord Jesus, you have your way. You become the Lord, you become our Savior, you become all that we long for in life. And we choose to turn away from idols and turn towards you. And thank you for your promise that when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just. Forgive all of our sins and make our slate clean fill us and restore us and redeem us. And you make us worship Jesus and you give us a hope and a future.
thank you, God, that you walk with us now. You send us your Holy Spirit. And if you, as you acknowledge, we acknowledge, God, that when we're weak, you are strong. And that you will establish your throne and your kingship, Lord, in our lives. And that we will look to you. And we will orientate our lives towards your goodness, your love, and your grace. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If anybody, we know that what I've gone through here is quite a deep thing. And there are areas of our lives where sometimes we just need someone to come alongside us to pray that through and to talk it through. And we have a prayer team wonderfully in this church who meets every Sunday here on the right-hand side out of the way of cameras. And if you would love just to have someone to pray with you through some of these things or to talk it through, then we want to offer that this morning. And they'll be, they'll be ready on the side here. But as we end the service time, as we close, we want to just thank you for, for being here. And pray that you would have a wonderful week as God speaks to you. And um, as always, there's coffee and tea, and we'd love you to stay as well. So please don't rush off if you're here, if you're visiting. We want to get to know you and to um, um, fellowship with you this morning as well. But let's pray and thank the Lord for this time this morning. Thank you, Jesus, that you are King. And we say with all joy, all authority, that you are our Lord and you've rescued us. And we thank you, God, as we go out now, that we would go knowing that... You are the way, the truth, and the life. And thank you for, for your kindness to us this morning. We ask God as we go out, we would know the strength and the power and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit walking with us in every area of our lives. Through the Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.